freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. Hello again, Coleman Nation. I'm not saying hello, Coleman Nation, because it's really culmination. You know that, right? We've been through this. Norm Pattis. Now, there's a well-known lawyer. Okay, don't give me this Twitter stuff. Norm Pattis is a guy who has been the real deal for Norm. You've been practicing since uh, since William Jennings Bryan, right? I mean, you, you, I know that you've you've been out there for a very very long time. You've done a lot of exciting things. Norm is is besides doing a lot of civil rights work, and uh, he, he's he's known as a, as a as a criminal law attorney in Connecticut, but of course he has a national practice, like all those fancy guys do. Nor, and I was on Norm's podcast, um, which we recorded, I, you know, I guess a month or two, a month or so ago, and uh, it dropped uh, a few weeks ago. And I shared all that with you, and I'm sure that none of you have forgotten a moment of it. Thanks for joining us, Norm. Thanks for having me. I, I, I really enjoyed our conversation. I can't, rem- and I'm embarrassed to say I don't remember the name of the publishing company, but I ordered a book on the Talmud um, <laughs> on your recommendation. And um, thank you so much for the time you you offered me, and thanks for the time now. I'm looking forward to this discussion. Well, I bet you know that it, that does now put me in. You know, that's that's a lot of pressure, mm. but I think we can handle it, both of us. Yeah. Uh, there's so much going on that is of mutual interest even though I think um, we don't necessarily share exactly the same political views. I, um, of course, I would shudder to think of anyone sharing the exact same views on anything, although I think there's increasingly the homogenization of the views that a person is permitted to hold is, is proceeding apace. You have been an, uh, an outstanding critic of the criminal justice system for a long time, as any criminal defense lawyer would have to be just by virtue of observing how things work there. Has anything gotten better or have things gotten worse in the last 10 years? That's a great question. You know, I mean, I, my, you know, my first impression of the criminal justice system was shock. Um, I I really couldn't believe what I was seeing. And I assumed that there was something wrong with my vision. And so, um, and maybe I didn't have enough experience. Maybe I wasn't asking the right questions. Maybe I hadn't read enough cases. Maybe I hadn't spoke to enough people. So I wandered around, wandered around. And then I just concluded, no, it really is outrageous what goes on here in terms like the trial tax, um, in terms of the heinous crime exception to the Bill of Rights, um, in terms of double jeopardy and the successive trial problems, excessive bonds, you know. And so um, have things gotten better or worse in the last 10 years? I remember sitting in a car with my then partner, John Williams in New Haven, when we learned about the new Department of Homeland Security, or more to the point, you know, I'm in the Northeast, I I was in the shadow of the World Trade Center towers, a day before they fell, leaving the Second Circuit. And the minute those planes struck, I thought this is the most dangerous time in American history for the Fourth Amendment, um, because security is going to trump the rights that we cherish. And so I think Within the last two years, and and I and and it is so. You know, we've got the surveillance state. We've got broad um, um, 
cooperation between private entities and the government in obtaining information. I mean, we did see the third party doctrine peeled back a little bit recently by the Supreme Court. But I think the thing that has me most concerned right now is what I would refer to as a republic of virtue, um, the public health state. Um, and so we've been engaged, and, and I haven't seen that trickle down much into the criminal justice system, but it's going to happen. Oh, it definitely is because yeah. we, you know, we've gone from fiat government mm. under under rolling emergency decrees. We can, we can do everything virtually except vote on legislation, it seems. Yeah. For, for some reason, legislators have to be in person or you gotta ramp them up with arrest warrants yeah. uh, you know, in order to get them to vote on something. So you have this executive decree system and you send these hapless sheriffs out to shut down gyms and um, you know, events and bar mitzvahs and then you know, you're, you're definitely, I think we are going to see, you know, with the, all this talk about the vaccine passports, a, a, a criminalization. And what has been astonishing to me, both participating in hearings over these issues, and, you know, Harmeet and I were, as you know, my partner's Harmeet yeah, Dillon, yeah. Um, we, we were very involved last year in challenges to COVID rules. Uh, on First Amendment grounds. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The experience of hearing judges, and this is much like what you were just, you know, the, the things you were listing off, just defer to an emergency decree as if, as if it were entitled to some presumption or, or as if that presumption were essentially irrebuttable. Well, but they didn't yeah. even go to that level of analysis. No, I mean, and it's almost like hysteria has become the norm. So, so much in the public health context, if you look at the 1905 decision of Massachusetts versus Jacobson, I mean, that was a decision upholding this, the Bay State's right to um, impose smallpox uh, vaccinations on people. That, was, that case is recited throughout the land as binding authority, but let's face it, that was a pre-incorporation of the First Amendment case. And if you actually read the decision, it was kind of ludicrous. I mean, these were lawyers who thought you could argue the preamble of the Declaration of Independence as binding authority. That wouldn't pass muster in a law school these days, much less a courtroom. And so when you try to engage a judge in a serious discussion of incorporation, there is this default deference to the state um, and to the state's imperatives. And this pandemic is now becoming the new normal as we morph into discussions of an endemic and endless variations. Um, but yet the body of law remains. And I think it's going to be imposed on, and relied upon for curtailing the Second Amendment. I've seen people refer to, quote unquote, systemic racism as a public health problem. And then, of course, there is, in my view, at least the very real problem of climate change. All of these claims will be revived or reinvigorated by the body of law we create now. And where's the Bill of Rights? And so, you know, you talk about changes in the criminal justice system in the last 10 years. I guess what I would say is there's a wanton disregard of the Bill of Rights and their role is real and substantial limits in, in favor of some sort of consequentialist view that we want a better society, therefore we'll ditch the Bill of Rights. That's just not how I was brought up and I'm prepared to fight that, you know? Well, where's the rest of the criminal defense bar? That's what I don't understand. Uh, I so that it's a, you know, we, we are now a year and a half into effective closed courts. 
Um, and, and so in Connecticut, at least where I spend most of my time, I used to see members of the bar in court and we'd go to pretrials, we'd observe wow. one another's a, trials. You're talking about an important phenomenon of this moment, which is the unthreading of the fabric of social existence that is so important, not only in neighborhoods among everyday people interacting regardless of their social stratum, but within strata themselves. Absolutely. I don't know where young lawyers are going to learn things. The, the sense of re, what's, what is and isn't reasonable in a plea bargaining context, for example, um, I acquired from years of trial and error and observation. And now I don't have access to that. There are virtual hearings, and I may see a judge from time to time online. Um, but there have been no trials in Connecticut to speak of, a handful. I mean, there are exceptions. And, it, and the buzz around the state is that we're heading for another lockdown. So I was at lunch with a friend of mine the other day. I said it could be two years, um, ultimately, from the time I last tried a case to the time I next tried one. That's bad for society, in my view. Trial is the acid test. It's where you say to the government, you may believe it, but can you prove it? Um, and I think in the absence of proof, the business of living together in government goes on. So we are becoming habituated to obedience, and that isn't good. It really isn't. And there's uh, uh, the, the, I mean, to me, the problem with, with the role of, we saw something happen during the Trump years where lawyer, it was a decision was made was made or a, con a consensus was reached. It's the same kind of consequentialism that you just referred to, where the concept that you and I did grow up with, which was that there's a lawyer for every, every single client and being the lawyer for that client was not remotely associated with agreeing with that client's point of view. And by the time the election was over in the fall, they were posting lists of law firms to pressure for representing the president of the United States. Why? Because he, because he was the wrong president. Yeah. And you and I are old enough to recognize that Trump derangement syndrome, and you don't have to be a conservative to believe that there's such a thing as Trump derangement syndrome, is just a variation on what the venom that was uh, that was um, attached to Nixon. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and before our time, the the way of you know a good quarter of the of, of the country that you never hear about in the history books hated Roosevelt. Yeah, yeah. despised Roosevelt, despised him. But only now do you have this idea that it's. It's okay if someone doesn't get a justice, or someone doesn't have the opportunity to be heard in any kind of any kind of, you know, penal or even administrative. How about disbarring Rudy or, or suspending Rudy Giuliani's license? The guy wasn't even given a hearing himself. No, I realize that that was an astonishing decision. I actually read it. You know, there was a there's a preliminary way to remove a person without a hearing if they pose an extraordinary threat to the to to, to con I guess to consumers or to clients. What's the extraordinary threat? I mean, he and Sidney Powell shot themselves in the foot. You know, I had enormous respect for Sidney Powell going into the litigation. I thought the work she did for Ted Stevens was outstanding. The work she did for the National Security Advisor, whose name I'm blanking on, was that Michael Flynn was outstanding. And so when she said she had something, I said to people, well, this ought to be interesting. And they put up or shut up time, she failed. 
Now, you know, should she be sanctioned for filing frivolous litigation? Maybe, and a court will have to make that decision. But you know what? I'm entitled as a lawyer, and people ought to be entitled to have as their lawyer, a person who's ready, willing, and able to go in and advance an unpopular cause. And if I don't have the evidence to support it, I lose. But do I lose my law license? What was the threat that Judy Rudy Giuliani posed? He he made a fool of himself in some respects, in my view. But so I've done that, been there, done that, and I don't want to sacrifice my life or my license because I'm sometimes a knucklehead. It was, but yet people are fine with that. I don't know if you've had a chance to look at Ben Shapiro's new book, you know, The Daily Wire, The Authoritarian Moment. I actually think he nailed it. You know, and um, um, there is a growing sense of unctuousness, of self-righteousness, of the conclusion that the ends justify the means. And if you if we disagree with your ends, it doesn't matter what your what means you use or we use, we will silence you. And why? Uh, there, we, we're losing something fundamental. We're losing the ability to dissent. We're losing tolerance for dissent. Um, we're losing the ability to think. I, I mean, and, and you see that when you have people who have who associate with what is with, with a movement or a political party that is known as liberal, who then go and say, it's okay if, uh, if a social media platform kicks somebody off because it, it's private property. Yeah. Since when were you so big on private property? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, so, so typically, Historically, it would be the role of lawyers to, not maybe the role of lawyers alone, but it would be an important role of lawyers to push back on this. And people, and there's a great intimidation factor, um, you know, not only at the level of criminalizing or sanctioning behavior, but even merely speaking out. I can't tell you how many private messages I get from anonymous lawyers who tell me that they they love what I do and they wish they, they could speak out too, but they're afraid for their jobs. And they should be because I got fired from my last job for, for, what I, for the kind of work that I do, representing wow, kind of clients. Wow, wow, um, and, You know, it's reality. I mean, that's why I'm with Harmeet now because we're that kind of lunatic. Wow. Well, you know, I, I don't have that problem because, you know, I work for a complete asshole. And, um, <laughs> and you know, well, that's I, what I, so when Army, Army came to me, I said, I wanted that opportunity. Too. She said, no, I can provide you with that. You know, I mean, cause I, you know, I've been self-employed for so long. I mean, my harshest critic is my wife. And frankly, she's pretty critical. I mean, she's been living on uh, in our summer home for the last four months. I'm not sure she's coming back because, you know, she's kind of she's further to the left than I am. I'm hoping that the love we shared over decades will be enough to repair things. But, you know, there are fundamental divisions in this country. And I don't see young lawyers um, standing up and standing out. I, I have a couple really good ones working for me right now. And I'm, you know, they, and I, both of them, like many, but these two in particular, um, they, they won't get vaccinated for religious reasons. And their view is that because the vaccine is produced in part um, from stem cells derived from fetuses, that's inconsistent with their principles. And it makes for awkward discussions around the office among those of us who are vaccinated, but I respect their decisions. And I, I'm proud to be able to accommodate them and I'll back the fights they pick on the name of those principles. I don't think a lot of law firms are prepared to do that anymore. You know, Not at all. Not at all. Yeah. And what I, what I can tell you from my own experience is that 
it's not only, you know, I had a very interesting discussion with a guy named um, Adam Townsend, who's a very successful investor uh, on the West Coast and who does a lot of social media, mostly Twitter Periscope videos. <laughs> and he's really a guy who sees things through a unique prism. And one of, the, one of the things that he has observed is that you have a sort of a revolution from the bottom going on now. And he associates it with, with Chinese infiltration into American society. But, but without even getting that specific, you could still contrast it with, in China, the way businesses and institutions are controlled is that the Communist Party makes sure that management and boards of entities have sufficient party representation on them mm -hmm. that decisions made at the top are politically correct. Mm. In America, your, your junior employees, your support staff and your vendors tell management what to do. Yeah, yeah. So you end up in a place where Victoria's Secret, which for years was known as being pioneers in the field of advertising, um, you know, lingerie, utilizing some of the most beautiful women in the world. It was a hot spot. <laughs> is, now, is now trying to sell that same merchandise, selling morbidly obese, using morbidly yeah. obese models to some, somehow remedy something or get a, and that, you know that no one in the marketing department, well, maybe they can't even say it, right? Because they, they're also facing these, you know. Well, so here's what I think. And I think the Victoria's Secret thing illustrates it perfectly. Um, you know, I like Aristotle's ethics. I like the ancient Greeks. I like the discussion of excellence. And I That's do nice, think- That's nice, because they speak very highly of you, I should point out. <laughs> All those dead guys, yeah. You know, you get beyond the age of 60 and you and death, you know, you become intimately familiar with death. I can, <laughs> you know, I, I'm gonna turn 66 in September and I've been in psychoanalysis for all, a better part of 12, 13 years now. And as I said to my analyst the other, the other day, you know, getting old has its benefits. I used to fear death. Now I'm getting adjusting to it. I sense within a decade or so, it'll become a friend such that when it ultimately comes, it will be welcome. And that's, of course, assuming I live that long and that remains to be seen. But to return to Victoria's Secret, here's, I think, what's at stake. I, I, I like to say the bottom has fallen out of pluralism, that, that we're, we're spending cultural capital that, we, that we're not replacing. What do I mean? We have an ancient tradition, an ancient Judeo-Christian tradition with sacred text, um, canonical authors, and people were trained for decades and generations to respect and interpret them and look for their lineage in their own lives to conform to models and visions of righteousness or excellence. You can't do that anymore. And the result is a race to the bottom and an inability to tell better from worse. Thus, a morbidly obese chick in a, in a bikini can be as beautiful as a live model. If because, you get to, because everyone has his own truth. Right. And, and they have their own truth and we're all and, and, you know, and the victim of the month. And yet and yet we need an energizing principle in life and it's become pathos and victimhood is the new road to sainthood. So, you know, if uh, if you've got to be live to be a model, no, you should be obese. Soon we'll be we'll be craving photographs of obese amputees with PTSD and learning disabilities. Um, it's just I mean, I don't mock the fact that some people face those challenges in life and my heart goes out to them, but I'm not gonna call them beautiful. I'm not beautiful in the way that a Victoria's Secrets model is. 
their character may be beautiful, but I, I've got a confession to make. When I'm looking at a Victoria's Secrets model, I'm not wondering what the last book she read is. It's eye candy, and it may be semi-pornographic eye candy, and but that's what it is. But we're now saying everybody has to be everything. We've lost the ability to make any distinctions in all we like she uh, so, so, so this is Michael Knowles's thesis. Yeah. This is what he writes about is the ability the ability to, to make distinctions and, yeah. and, and to, and, and, you know, language has lost its meaning and as lawyers, yeah. that should trouble us very much. We, and it's something that, you know, the right has been screaming about in constitutional jurisprudence for a long time. And I'm sure that there have been moments when the shoe has been on the other foot as well, but judges, you know, we've known for a long time, those of us who practice for decades, that if a judge wants to go somewhere, there's no statute or precedent that's going to stop him or her from going there. We, they're they're going to find a way. And, you know, I, I, I had a trademark case where the judge had issued a previous opinion where he said, well, there was no secondary meaning. There was no trademark meaning in that trademark because it was still a really brand new product. And if there had been A, B, C, or D, I could see why maybe there would be an issue of fact here, but there isn't, so I'm going to grant summary judgment. In my case, same judge. I said, hey, judge, remember that decision? Look what I've got here. A, B, C, D, and D. I've got them all. So he wrote a 60-page opinion decision explaining why those weren't good enough mm. summary judgment if you're writing a 60 page summary judgment opinion you're acknowledging that there are fact issues absolutely yeah. but he wasn't going to be stopped he understood his business was to get rid of this case that's an old problem it's not unique to our moment but still in all we do go to law school and maybe maybe the joke was on us and engage in the endeavor of trying to find the real meaning or the reasonable person's understanding of what words mean. So when you get to the point where a CNN reporter can stand in front of burning buildings and say, mostly peaceful protests, fiery, <laughs> but mostly peaceful protests, <laughs> you realize we're not, there, we're not there anymore. So then what is a society? Borders well, I, aren't borders. And so as a I criminal mean, defense lawyer, that's, that's a big problem for you. It's a huge problem. So, you know, it used to be the case back when I was able to argue cases to juries, oh, two years ago, that I would, <laughs> I would routinely use Cicero and I would say, look, you know, the Roman orator Cicero once said a, a republic, a race publica, a public thing, a commonwealth isn't just any collection of people. It's a people bound together by common interest and a common conception of right. And you in juror, as jurors are the conscious of the community. You are the repositors of this conception of right. And the constitution is our contract with one another. And for the following reasons, depending on the case, you should acquit, you know. Um, people don't read. I don't think we have common conceptions of right any longer. And I mean that in the most fundamental sense. I mean, when we have to argue about the pronouns that we use, or we have to argue about what, what we identify as in contradistinction to what we are, um, we've lost something fundamental. And to me, we, it's gone to the point of parody and absurdity. And the truly shocking thing is no one notices anymore. Now I have given up, 
you know, you mentioned CNN and the Chiron, you know, fiery, but mostly peaceful. I can't recall the last time I turned CNN on uh, or MSNBC or Fox News. It's certainly more than a year. Um, I've given up on cable news. Um, I gave up on the New York Times for a while, but I've returned um, because it, you know, somebody's got to try to cover the world. And the Wall Street Journal is okay, but I like the breadth of coverage. But I don't know where we go. I mean, I guess I come to places like this and look to meet people like you, where I can recognize a sympathetic spirit um, who is struggling to find a common sense of truth in a tradition that that I value. And for me, that's that's enough. I mean, and 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 that's you know, it's not it's not enough for the larger world, but it's going to oh, have to be enough for today. Right. You, you read my mind because there there's obviously going they're going to be intelligent discussions among intelligent people of good of, of goodwill. Yeah, that will continue. But there was a time when what we call the media hmm. felt or at least displayed some sense of broader social responsibility. And the, the fascinating thing, again, both in the case of CNN, just like just as just as as, as in the case of uh, you know um, woke marketing, like in uh, <laughs> in CNN, that they don't have they they have no audience. Yeah, no one watches them. But as a business unit, they're somehow at least in the in the medium run, seem to be insulated from caring about that. So like what so what we saw with the New York Times was over the last five years a phenomenal thing that no one expected, which was they gave up on becoming reasonable mm-hmm. or remaining reasonable mm-hmm. and said, you know, we can actually hold on to a, enough subscribers and advertisers who simply want to hear what they expect to hear and not be challenged to make a, a pretty good business of this. Mm-hmm. And their revenue shot way up so now there's they're only speaking to a very narrow sector now, of interesting course, the, like you say people don't read anymore so it's not as if all right i mean let's 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 take a step back you're talking to jurors right i'm not worried that those jurors are reading the times right. and being because like you said no no one's reading everything everything is based on you know on, on entertainment um and here we are, guys, you know, on the on the short end of the stick and getting friendly with the reaper, as you, you know, as you, as you put it. By the way, I'll tell you something biblical or Talmudic. The rabbis say that before the time of, um, of Abraham, people didn't age. They just died. Their time, their time came. After reaching adulthood, that was just the look. Yeah, yeah. Like me, right? I look still look thirty. You're not. <laughs> <laughs> My problem was I looked thirty when I was fifteen. Yeah. They just died. Yeah. And God and 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 God said, uh, in the case of Abraham, to, in order to show him um, grace because he he was such a deserving person that humanity would now age so that they could ease into the idea of mortality even though people according to the bible lived hundreds of years right you know the the longer you live the more you get used to being alive well there is that and the more and the longer you live the more you acquire aches and pains that make mortality look like 
you know, look like a, make you feel like a used car. Let me, you know, I want to return to this business about jurors. I, I, you know, I've spent a lot of time in the last year. You've tried hundreds of cases, right, hundreds right. of cases. I'm an envy of you. <laughs> I've tried like a half a dozen jury yeah. cases, which yeah. makes me on the civil side, on the, on, on the non, in other words, on people who are charging a, a you know, a relatively primo rate, mm. a relatively experienced trial attorney. Mm. I've, you know, but someone like you who's who really was really seen a lot of juries. I just I want those who don't know that uh, who are listening to to understand this pers- the perspective that you know that you. So heard. you know, juries the juries are the hardest working people in a courtroom, and they're the most afraid afraid people. You know, in the end, here's what a trial is: a trial is always a moral drama. It's about good and evil, and you're asking the jurors to do something. And when you walk into the courtroom, you should recognize it's a temple of fear, and everyone is responding to their fears. The judge's fear is a loss of control. The prosecutor's fear—I don't know that I, I can't understand that. My fear is I, my my own insecurity and the the fear of adverse consequences to my to my client, but all the participants other than the jury know why they're there. They've developed some understanding of the case. They have some understanding of the rules. They have some expectation of what happens next. The jurors are entirely ignorant and they're looking for a person to trust. And trials in the end become contests always between good and evil. And if you can't find good on your side of the aisle, you better damn well be sure you can create evil either on the bench or on the other side of the aisle because the jury will follow good. They try to do the right thing. Let me read you a beautiful line that I hadn't noticed the first time I read, or paragraph, um, that I hadn't noticed the first time I read Orwell's 1984, but I'm rereading um, dystopian classics now because I think we read in, we live in dystopian times and I'm looking for inspiration. So here, here is what Winston Smith, the protagonist in 1984, had to say about people who were off the grid, the so-called proles. They didn't quite matter. They were governed by private loyalties, which they did not question. What mattered were individual relationships and a completely helpless gesture, an embrace, a tear, a word spoken to a dying man could have value in itself. The proles that suddenly occurred to him had remained in this condition. They were not loyal to a party or a country or an idea. They were loyal to one another. That to me speaks to our time. And that speaks to why I was so delighted um, to be um, with you again today. And why I look what I call for opportunities to create a handshake society or a handshake culture. Jurors are not part of the larger drama of our time. They're proles. I'm a prole. What was it? What, what did Hillary call us? I'm a deplorable and a proud deplorable. The last thing I want to be is part of some self-righteous mob. Look what happened in, in New York this week. It was extraordinary. Mario Cuomo, the highest elected official of a state, was driven out of office by a self-righteous mob. Not with, and I'm not endorsing his conduct. But, you know, back in the day when we grew up, you do some of the things he did with a woman, you got yourself a slap in the face. You didn't get yourself a most wanted poster on CNN. Um, but Cuomo, the highest elected official, was driven out of state claiming the goalpost had shift. He didn't realize he did wrong. He did no wrong. He protested his innocence and he quit. He buckled under to a self-righteous mob. I'm outraged by that. So, you know, I, I, I had a, a podcast that with a provocative title, um, Andrew, Andrew, Andrew. You pussy. (laughs) I mean, he should have stuck by his guns because ordinary people voted for him. And I don't think most of us cared if he kissed somebody on the cheek or if he touched someone. Right. I mean, the fact of the matter is the reason he quit 
was because his party decided he had that yeah. he was no longer going to be a political uh, um, asset. He was a liability. And he, nursing homes. Uh, oh, uh, I know, I know. Morehouse Commission, yeah. not a problem, <laughs> not a problem. Future presidential candidate, boob grab, you're out of here. Because that's, that's the, you know, it's funny because I, I, for years I said that the, that the third rail in American social discourse now is racism, but mm. I suppose anything likes I think it, no, I think it's become identity. It's bigger than race now. And I, I, I suspect the next two to four or six years will be the dissolution of our consensus about identity because there's only so far you can take it. I mean, I, I really don't well, think. What, we, okay, help me out. What is the consensus about identity that you think is going to be dissolved? That identity is all there is. I mean, you know, I think we're going to have to bounce back in the in the in, in the direction of something like character or excellence or some common good, because identity is fragmentary. And, you know, I think at the margins, the proles, people like me just aren't going to want to finance special. You know, I, I mean, I'm not interested in potty politics. I don't think we should have to recraft every bathroom in the United States. I don't think that we should clog the courts with cases that saying a person born a man who wants to become a woman should compete in a woman's athletic event. I, I to me, that is the height of absurdity. And I worry about the evolving 21st century and an emergent China, how are we gonna to respond to the first threat to our national security? Uh, a nation of wimps is not gonna have much of a response and that's what we're becoming. Well, you know, before you even got to the, to the military point, I was, had already formulated my next question, which was based on an interview I did a couple of weeks ago. Oh no, it was only last week. What a long week it's been, yeah. especially for old people like us. The weeks are like nothing now, right? No, I know. Isn't yeah? Who's playing? Who's playing? Who's playing in the Super Bowl? <laughs> I so I interviewed this 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 young man named Joe Kent, who's running for Congress, and out in Oregon, and he's on the side of the river next to Portland, which is Red yeah, Wokeville. Yeah. <laughs> No, no, no. He, oh, okay, 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 okay. I got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's a former, a former um, Green Beret, wow. Army Ranger, and he spent some time with the CIA. He's killed people, hmm. and he knows how to kill people. And I asked him, you know, is there any, is there any institution in the United States? I wonder, other than the elite military um, formations in the United States where no excuses are still accepted. We're not, we're not, there's no entitlement based on identity or being someone's child. I wouldn't say that about the entire military because that's every bit as woke as Victoria's Secret and Ben mm. and Jerry's. Mm. But these special ops guys and gals, his wife died uh, in in uh, in action, but these special ops guys, you you've got like you, see, there's enough economic cushion that that you say what you know we don't want to fund this. We haven't run out of money yet, and the, mm -hmm. and the decision was made, you know, to just keep printing money. I mean, there's no there's no accountability with what is done with public money, mm -hmm. or corporate money or foundation money or 
consulted money. That's good. There's going to be a lot of money in the system to finance mm-hmm. a lot of garbage for a very long time. And schmucks like us who work by the hour are going to completely, you know, we're, we're just watching the truck pull out of the driveway. Mm-hmm. But other than these very small units, there, you know, it's very hard to identify too many areas and maybe to some extent law profession, the illegal practice is one. I mean, if you always I'd say try No, I'd say trial lawyers, yeah. it, you know, it, I may not be taking bullets, but I'm taking a lot. And trial lawyers is, are an opportunity to stand for something. And it's an unforgiving environment. It's a form of warfare. You either come back with your client or without them and yeah. in, in, the criminal, in the criminal context. And there are no excuses that are accepted. That's why um, I would, you know, my wife's father, of blessed memory, was a heart surgeon. Oh, wow. And she's a law school graduate. She got into the law school, one of the many law schools I didn't get into. Um, and when we were first married and she, uh, she had already started, uh, she was never a litigator. And when, you know, when she saw what it was, even just being a junior litigator in a big firm, but all the more so as I got more of a frontline kind of experience, she said, and I don't know if you know this, but no, Jewish man can ever, no Jewish husband can ever be meet up, meet the standards set by his father-in-law, alive mm-hmm. or dead. I've got to admit, you litigators are the surgeons of the legal mm-hmm. profession. Mm-hmm. And I always, after telling that story, I said, but unlike, I said, we may be, but the brain surgeons are the criminal defense lawyers. Because yeah. Yeah. That, that responsibility that you just described it, I find it mind-boggling. Like you said, you you, you come back with your client or, w- or without him. And, you know, I've seen people lose money and lose their reputations and all the kinds of things, all the civil wrongs that can happen. And I sometimes I can help them and sometimes I can't. But losing your freedom and look at, I mean, you mentioned um, Sidney Powell's defense of, uh, you know, of General Flynn. Where was the criminal defense bar when a judge decided to appoint a private prosecutor answerable to him? That to me was the mo- like, that was the moment. Yeah, no, I know. And I just, you know. <laughs> you know, I had, I had a great experience. One of the best experiences of my legal career last year, a good friend of mine's son is a student at, at an elite law school. I don't want to name it for reasons that become obvious in a moment. Um, and so he asked, and because they did their classes by Zoom, he wanted the young man to have per, you know, personal experience. So I agreed to tutor him in, in some of his first year classes throughout his first year. And we did con law and criminal law. We'll do some other courses this semester. And it forced me to reread a couple textbooks. And I'd meet with this kid uh, for an hour or so each week and talk about the issues I spotted. Cool. And it brought, yeah, it brought the law alive to me again in ways that it hadn't been. And in watching him react, and, and before we began the semester, I had him read Locke's second treatise on government. And the reason for that was, look, you know, govern, you know, Immanuel Kant once said that two things filled him with wonder. And he said this in the critique of judgment, uh, the, the moral law within and the starry, the, the starry heavens above and the moral law within. I said, there's a third thing that stuns me. And that is the phenomena of government, how perfect strangers acquired the right and the power to tell me what to do. Your job as a lawyer is to learn the meets and bounds of how that's justified. And on behalf of the individuals you represent to challenge 
each and every in, uh, restriction on individual liberty, because our system of government comes out of a profound respect for individuals and liberty, and never forget for a moment that every courtroom you walk into is a gladiatorial arena, and you are standing between the crowd and your client, and the crowd will kill, consume, and restrict your client's liberty, fight to the death. And the kid got it. It was so, and, and, you know, and that is my attitude toward criminal courts. I like to joke with prosecutors. Connecticut's a very small state, so I meet you. You're on the other side. Ron, tough case I've got here, but I'm going to give you a choice now. There are two ways we can work this case out. My way and the hard way. You choose. <laughs> but be careful what you wish for. And, you know, I can't imagine a better way to spend a living than standing next to somebody that everybody hates and saying, you want them, you got to come through me to get them. <laughs> I yeah. just can't imagine, you know? You know I, 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 and I'll tell you something else too. You know, you talk, we talked at the beginning about those moments waiting in hallways, yeah. waiting, in, at, waiting at trial calls, yeah. cattle call trial calls yeah. we have in New York. Um, taking out these elite big firms you know, operators with their careerism and their in-house, you know, uh, you know, um, trajectories to, you know, high six-figure, low seven-figure annual push-button I'm still available for one of those jobs, folks. 203-393-3017. If you're a big firm recruiter with a million dollars to spare, looking for a mouth to rent, somebody who'd fight his own shadow in defense of liberty, can talk a mile a minute and can bill aggressively, that's me. 203-393-3017. All offers considered. Entirely, You're entirely too damaged goods. Entirely too damaged. And if this... If your podcast with me on your end didn't do it, this one will. Yeah. Um, but aside from those from those people, and most of them actually, when you get down to it, you know, the, the regular people. Yeah. I always found that hanging around with regular regular lawyers. Yeah. And I'm really, I, I got to admit, I'm really talking about a male bonding experience. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Waiting for a judge to come out, or even you know, some of my tenderest moments have been spent with adversaries while juries out yeah. where we, we can really talk about honestly before my humiliation or his and bef and not and the trial's over what the hell can you believe she made that oh i know yeah. this judge ever even go to take an evidence class yeah. Yeah. and they really they really don't know i mean yeah. have you i mean you must be noted i mean what how do you enjoy that? Oh, my point was, what great guys most lawyers are. Yeah, it's really true. They're real, you know, they're they're interesting people. They know how to think dialectically. This is, you mm -hmm. know, they recognize that there are multiple sides that you have to be able to and to be an effective advocate. You need to be actually able to understand the other person's point of view. Yep, yep, yep. You don't have to accept it, but you need to understand it. Well, I love appellate advocacy for that very reason. You know, you know it took me way too long to get into into that, but I, I also really enjoy it. I mean, for me, the, you know, the best part of preparing for an appeal is the morning of argument. You're up at three, four o'clock in the morning and you make one last one last read of your adversary's brief. And then you ask yourself the age old question, how will I be humiliated today? <laughs> And you, re, you know, you come up with your response, and that's usually my opening line at argument. My adversary will say that I'm wrong because, well, that's not right, and it's just a great game. It's a, but I cut you off. I'm sorry. No, no, yeah. uh, no. no that's yeah. just, this is the kind of yeah. game take that, you, that, yeah. I, that I want to yeah. have. No, just 
on the one hand, I was, my first point was that, you know, you said I would, there was nothing I would rather spend my time yeah. doing. Yeah. Hanging around with lawyers in an old musty state courthouse, you know, there's something, there, there's a kind of bonding there that, that, you know, I, I don't know if the younger, if the younger crowd, I ever forget, I was first day of trial. Oh no, it was, it was just a, it was a scheduling conference and I had a, a senior associate in one of my, pre, one of my many previous firms shows up <laughs> in federal court. I see him coming up with a backpack. And I just, I, my eyes pop out and, and like, I'm a pretty with it guy as an Orthodox Jewish middle-aged man goes, but I just never occurred to me that a that an experienced lawyer would come to federal court, bring his stuff in a backpack. Yeah. And I, I don't know, it, it, you know, I mean, that's just, that's just old crusty get off my lawn stuff, I guess, but he, when well, he I mean, there's a foxhole camaraderie. You know, years ago, I had a young woman working for one of the firms uh, that I was a partner in, and and uh, she 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 came back. She lost a trial, and she was really upset. And I said, well, you know, you can't control the facts. You can't control the rulings. All you can control is what you can contribute. And I said, I have an observation to make. And I said, you come back from each trial the same person you were when they began. And unless you're leaving some skin on the floor, you haven't tried the case. Every trial should change you a little bit because you go to die. Open them up. Yeah. Open and, them up. And, you know, and, and, I, and I think that that process of bleeding together with your colleague, even if he's on the other side of the aisle, you develop foxhole camaraderie. Um, and I, I, it's very rare that I don't develop very warm regard for the lawyer on the other side. There are a few, and I can name a couple of them instantaneously, that are, <laughs> that are such, un, such unctuous creeps that I, you know, I wouldn't share a cab to a whorehouse with them. Uh, <laughs> but for, for the most part, right that way. Yeah, though. but for them, yeah, not that I go, um, <laughs> but I've heard. Uh, but, you know, but, but most people in the end, as you say, you know, every they're they're struggling with their own fears they've been shed on usually by the same judge and you're both in terror i remember one time the case turned out well for me and i, I guess my adversary saw it before i did because we were awaiting a verdict and he was vomiting into a into a, a, a drinking fountain in a, in a federal court well and, you know i just went and put my hand in his back i said you all right you know are you all right he says yeah yeah you know and then he wasn't all right once the verdict came in. I was thrilled, but um, um, it was a big money case. It was a civil case. Um, but, you know, it's, it's moments like that that, that you remember forever, um, the human contact. And, you know, and, and you forget, every time you read an appeal, you realize how many opportunities there are to screw up. Oh, God, yeah. Such and such, well, that might have been an interesting issue, but you didn't reserve that, or yeah. you, you didn't object. And there are real lawyers, real experienced lawyers, law firms you've heard of, who made this record of, of trial screw-ups or pre-trial screw-ups. And because it's, it's a moving thing. Yeah. It's a living thing. And you're making decisions. And sometimes you decide not to act. And, you know, as we, as we finish up, I'm very active talking on, on, on social media, especially Twitter. That's my, that's my place. Talking about the law. And one of the things I try to remind people when they second guess lawyers and outcomes is if you don't have the red welt, you do not know. 
you don't know why the lawyer didn't ask that question. It seems so obvious to you they should have asked. Yep. You don't know why something wasn't responded to because there might very well be a smoking gun in the direction that you're not aware of or something that the client doesn't want made known, even though it would be, you know, the killer response. You don't know. And you've got all these people second guessing what lawyers do. And these are obviously people who, who don't read a lot of cases because, yeah. and, and, and of course I'm, I'm talking about myself to some extent because I do a lot of high profile work and often for unpopular people. Yeah. So yeah. people like to, you know, um, gang up and say, so you look, you know, Laura Loomer's lawyer is so incompetent. Here's what he did. Because after all, if you hate Laura, Laura Loomer, his, her lawyer must be a terrible person also. And there, and therefore, if he didn't respond to something in the time that whoever wrote the last filing said he should have responded to something, he must have done something wrong. Well, that's possible. Or there are other possibilities that you as someone who has probably never really practiced law wouldn't even dream of. Well, and then too, I've, I've never, you know, I say to the young lawyers here, there's no right way to try a case. There are wrong ways. And my name's on the door. And so I'm here to police the standard of care, but go out and amaze me with something I hadn't thought about, you know, figure it, find your own way. But I can tell you in all of my cases, I could look at a transcript or even in a win thinking, ah, I should have done this. I could have done that. Maybe next time I'll do this. I'm, you know, I'm never satisfied with the record I've made. And one of the most painful experiences is reading your own record. That very issue. Why didn't I object to this? Well, what was I thinking? And, you know, the fact of the matter is reality is complicated and the judgments we make, we make in the moment. And there is an acceptable range with, of the standard of care. And some days I'll rule, some days I'll object on this grounds, some days on another, some days I'll have the presence of mind to do both. And there may be days that I forget because I'm thinking about something else. That's life. That's life in the court. Human person. And that's why the law, like medicine, yeah. is really an art. Yeah. You, you need to know the science to apply, the, to, to, to be successful as, as an artist, but the art comes when you master the, when you master the tools, then you apply your, whatever magic you may or may not have. No, and we that, need yeah, to do this much more regularly. We do. Thank you so much for having me. And let me say to you, Mazel Tov. <laughs> or, or something, I'm sure. Something, I don't know. Yeah, yeah well, I'll take it. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thanks for having day. me, Ron. Bye. So long. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.